coming to you from beyond the veil, where anything is possible and nothing is beyond your reach, where time and space are figments of your imagination and life is but a dream. Open your minds, open your hearts, and get ready for a one-way trip into the unknown. This is Messages from the Multiverse with Ian R. Anderson, Certified Hypnotherapist. Hello everyone and thank you for joining us for episode 6 of Messages from the Multiverse. This is the second part of our series on propaganda and suggestibility. In the first episode of Messages from the Multiverse, we talked about suggestibility, which indicates not only our dominant style of receiving messages, but also the degree to which we are receptive to those messages. Our dominant style of taking in messages, which can either be inferentially or literally, does not change much throughout our lives. But the degree to which we are receptive to those messages can vary greatly from day to day or even moment to moment. We discussed how negative trance states can leave our subconscious minds wide open to influence after the conscious or critical portion of our mind has been overloaded with information and we are left exposed to negative messages. I'm not going to rehash the entire first episode, though I will be referring to certain points throughout this episode, so if you haven't heard the first part of this discussion, I recommend you at least go back and listen to it after you finish this second part. In this episode, we are going to cover the most important types of information which can overload the human mind and leave it temporarily exposed to influence. When I say important, I mean the most effective in creating an overload of messages from which we want to escape. Because when we escape from that overload, we go into that state of hypersuggestibility which we all call a trance state. I said it in the first episode and I will say it again now. Almost all of us are in a trance of some kind most of the time. The question is, what quality of trance are you in? Are you in an empowering, liberating trance in which your mind is suggestible or receptive to positivity, messages of success and belief in your capabilities, your strengths, and your ability to get the most out of every day? Or are you in a trance which leaves you susceptible to negative beliefs about your own self-worth, a general depression about the world and its condition, feeling as though you will never come out on top and fearful of your fellow humans and the future? So what are the most important types of messages when creating a state of mind in which people are most easily manipulated or made susceptible to false limiting or negative suggestions? They are messages of fear, confusion, misdirection, anxiety, and insecurity. A person who is in fear or confused, anxious or hopeless, is so susceptible to manipulation that they will often believe or do anything if it offers even the slightest chance of ending their suffering. This is an unconscious response, by the way. When we are in a state of fear or confusion, we are unconsciously open to any solution to that uncertainty. Why do you think it is that good people support evil wars? Why is it that the good American people supported a war on terror when war itself is terrorism? If we were thinking clearly at the time and not in a state of fear from the attacks of September 11, 2001, most of us would have seen the proposed war on terror for what it really was, imperialism and fascism clothed in a paper-thin costume of peace, freedom, and security. Only people who are in a trance could possibly accept a concept as ridiculous as achieving peace through perpetual conflict and destruction. Noam Chomsky said it perfectly when he said, Propaganda is to a democracy what the bludgeon is to a totalitarian state. Propaganda is a weapon, which has been used against the human race since the beginning of civilization to keep us fighting, to keep us easily controllable, and to keep us looking to our leaders for the ready-made, predetermined solutions to the problems that they created themselves. It has been used all along to prevent one group of people from being able to work with the neighboring group, 
so the people could not organize their minds and empower each other enough to eventually realize that they had been fooled and then do something about it. As H.L. Mencken states in In Defense of Women, the whole aim of practical politics is to keep the populace alarmed and hence clamorous to be led to safety by an endless series of hobgoblins, most of them imaginary. This is why we don't even need to see the people with whom we are supposedly in a fight to the death. Most of us would be much happier to send our children to foreign nations to die while dropping bombs on towns full of families and schools, hospitals and universities, just so we can hopefully kill some of those imaginary hobgoblins at the same time. I know that many of you are thinking, what about the people who died in 9-11, the attacks on France, Belgium, etc., don't they need to be avenged? Those attacks really happen, that enemy is real. And you have a point. Sometimes the only way to survive is to fight. But we have to ask ourselves why we live in a world with so much conflict in the first place, don't we? Are we not too technologically, morally, socially, and spiritually evolved to let ourselves fall for the same old fascist propaganda tricks which have deceived us for the last several thousand years? That's right, several thousand years. Let's take a look at history for some examples of propaganda being used as a weapon against people or to urge warfare against another, less human culture. Two thousand years ago, the poet Virgil wrote about the Greeks, both acknowledging their skill in the arts and urging their submission to Rome. In his Aeneid, he wrote, Others shall hammer forth more delicately a breathing likeness out of bronze, coax living faces from the marble, plead causes with more skill, plot with their gauge the movements in the sky until the rising of the constellations. But you, Roman, must remember that you have to guide the nations by your authority, for this is to be your skill, to graft tradition onto peace, to spare those who submit, but to crush those who resist. Taking a close look at the official art and architecture of the ruling or controlling parties will make some things clear as well. How about the giant statues of the pharaohs or the enormous structures of the elite Egyptian priesthood? These works of art and construction were created to inspire fear and awe as well as portray the power of the rulers over the little people. Not much had changed by the time of Socrates, around the 400s BCE, coincidentally the same time the Parthenon was being built. An act can be just as much of a piece of propaganda as a building. The Parthenon was built to symbolize the power of the Greek gods and the people's service to them. It was supported by the Athenian people out of love and reverence for their patron Athena, and by the priesthood, for it provided endless offerings. But as Socrates recognized, the religious system of Greece was benefiting the elite even more than the gods themselves. He was made to commit suicide by the government of Athens for corrupting the youth and rejecting the Athenian gods. Because of his bravery in the face of unimaginable odds, he is still remembered to this day for his brilliant use of questions as counter-propaganda. Jump forward a couple thousand years to Hitler's Nazi party propaganda. The result is the same as any past rulers trying to subjugate a particular group, but the Nazis were very innovative and creative in their means. The posters, cartoons, and films created to depict the Jewish people as subhuman were so subtle and yet so powerful that the German people followed along while millions of people were put to death right under their noses. If you want a perfect example of how direct and inferential messages can be used to put an entire culture into a trance, just look at the Nazis. The grand architecture, the massive crowds all walking in the same direction, in unison, 
thousands of swastika flags on poles topped by eagles of gold inspiring fear and through fear conformity. Images of the most well-known German celebrities saluting Hitler. Films of Hitler youth all following their leader doing what good children do, all artfully depicted to the woe of anyone daring to be different. Not a single art form escaped the perverse and twisted Nazi propaganda machine. If you want a perfect example, watch the films of the 1938 Nuremberg Olympics rally. Now, we could go on and on about the Nazis. I would rather not focus any more attention on them, so let's move on. I have made my point. Propaganda has been around since the beginning of human civilization and has always been used as a distraction to keep us all from thinking about the real issues. But it goes even further than realizing that we have all been fooled into handing over the control of our entire planet. Our own hearts and minds have been hijacked by this force, which wants to keep us low while elevating itself to ever higher levels of power. Now, we are going to really look at what it means to be human and the different facets of humanness. Let's start with the obvious, the human body. Is there one ethnic group or nationality whose members do not have two arms and two legs, one heart, one head, one brain, two genders, one liver, two kidneys, red blood, and two lungs with which breathe oxygen for life? No, of course not. Is there a group of people who, due to the fact of being born in a country different from yours, are born with a smaller brain than the people of your nationality? Of course not. So then is there any reason why, taking the physical body's construction into account by itself, a person's skin color should have any effect on their status as a human being with all the rights of any other human being of a different skin color? It is still skin, isn't it? They're not covered with scales, are they? Of course not. Then let's move on to something a little less quantifiable. The human being's ability to reason. Is there one ethnic group which has contributed not a single member to the world's top scientists, scholars, researchers, writers, philosophers, and teachers? Barring all discussion of socio-cultural struggle and the economic limitations experienced by many people of the world, is there any national group who has been found unable to learn calculus, algebra, engineering, software programming, or unable to speak the language of another culture? Is there any evidence that someone from Zimbabwe Egypt, China, Australia, America, Brazil, or Siberia would not be able to understand the philosophy of, say, Immanuel Kant, just as any other person who took the time to explore the philosophical and ethical systems of thought founded by the greatest thinkers throughout human history? The answer to all these questions is absolutely not. Of course, if there is anything that the information age and the introduction of the internet to all the areas of the world has proven, it is that people are just as capable as all others when it comes to their ability to think and reason. It has given people who would not have had the chance otherwise the opportunity to be educated and access information which would have been out of their reach just a few years ago. It is not where you come from or what you look like that determines these things. It is how you are taught to think, what you are taught to value, and what you are conditioned to believe that creates the limitations which have proven to keep people from rising to their full potential. Now the most important issue of all, the human being's ability to give and receive love. Love is one of those human qualities that is entirely unquantifiable. It cannot be measured or located or even properly defined, but we all know it when we see it, don't we? We definitely know it when we feel it. And I don't mean the kind of love you feel when you drink your triple espresso latte in the morning. I mean the kind of love you feel when you look into the eyes of someone you would be willing to die for. Is it only Americans or Southeast Asians that experience that feeling? No. 
It's all humans, regardless of where we are from or what we look like. You might not think that this has much to do with propaganda, but it has everything to do with it. Propaganda is why we have all been convinced to accept the divisions between people of different skin colors, religions, and languages. It's based on nothing. It is simply a belief system we have all been programmed to accept without much question. And even those of us who know we're not racist are still guilty of thinking that our nation is the best one from time to time. The very fact that we identify ourselves by the imaginary lines within which our parents were standing when we were born is beyond absurd because it has no basis in reality whatsoever. Have you ever seen a natural razor wire fence at the place where two nations touch? They don't exist. That's why governments build walls and fences. And they do it just as much to keep you in as they do to keep others out. It sends a message that is clear to the emotions and the subconscious mind, which the conscious mind often glazes right over. It says, we own you, and they are your enemy. Now, out of all this history and reflection on how propaganda has led us into the situation we are in now on this planet, I would like to give you my definition of propaganda. The way I see it, propaganda is any ideology or belief system that is suggested, advertised, or forced onto humanity in order to convince us that we are less than we truly are, and thus that we ought to settle for less than we truly deserve. I'll repeat that. Propaganda is any ideology or belief system that is suggested, advertised, or forced onto humanity in order to convince us that we are less than we truly are, and thus that we ought to settle for less than we truly deserve. I say this because propaganda does not have the best interest of anyone but the propagandist in mind. I draw a distinction between this and counter-propaganda, which does have the best interest of the human race in mind and is a way of using the system's own techniques against it. In the first episode, I talked about suggestibility types, literal versus inferential, and I also told you how to find the suggestibility questionnaires on my website, www.hypnotropia.com. That's H-Y-P-N-O-T-R-O-P-I-A dot com. You can find them at the bottom of the What is Hypnosis page. One thing I mentioned and promised that we would get back to is the suggestibility type, which consists of those who land at or very near the center of the suggestibility scale. Those people are called somnambulists, and they make up about 20% or one person in five of the human adult population. What does it mean to be a somnambulist? Let me explain. For somnambulists, being right in the middle of the scale means that they are equally receptive to both literal and inferred messages or suggestions. This can be a good thing or a bad thing, depending on your environment, your upbringing, your inner dialogue, and the types of media that you consume. Somnambulists spend the majority of their life in a hypersuggestible state because they are so easily overloaded, since they're always taking in literal and inferred information. When their suggestibility is not balanced and under control, this can be very confusing to the senses, harmful to the body, and can create many symptoms which present like obsessive-compulsive disorder, post-traumatic stress disorder, ADD, ADHD, and others. Somnambulists are easily affected by negativity, and when they accept a negative message, they respond negatively to it, which causes them to think negatively about themselves. Since they are equally, if not more so, hypersuggestible to their own thoughts, they start to slide into a negative feedback loop, which can bring them into a dark place very quickly. Therapeutically, somnambulists respond very well and very quickly to hypnosis, 
And if they stick with their treatment plan and complete the assignments given to them by their trained and trusted hypnotherapist, they can achieve remarkable change in a short period of time. They must be reinforced many times, though, or they will flip back to their old ways just as readily. When the somnambulist is balanced in mind, emotion, and body, they can be extremely intelligent and very successful. They are often the people who are good at everything they do, learn things very quickly, are very creative, and can easily adapt to almost any situation. But the pathological nature of our culture leaves few of these people with balanced mind-body systems. Most are overworked, overstressed, spending much of their time in the fight-flight state, which robs them of much of their higher thought processes, which allow abstract problem-solving, and the deeper emotional functions such as empathy and compassion. This inevitably leads to a loss of purpose and feeling as though the richness and meaning of life has faded into a grayness, which the establishment would suggest can only be salvaged with psychiatric medication. They can become lost, hopeless, and very depressed. Remember, I'm speaking about 20% of adults. If this doesn't sound like one out of five of the adults you know, then I would like to come live on your planet. Now, although many people will say that children are very literal, which they can be and often are, children are actually somnambulists too most of the time. Remember, children's minds are like sponges, taking in everything they see, hear, feel, or experience in any other way. Your tone of voice when speaking to your children can be equally as important as the words you choose. Children are extremely suggestible to messages encoded in, in images and advertising, especially if the images are paired with spoken words and music or sound effects. This is even more important with children than adults because they are already hypersuggestible. Then on top of that, they are often overloaded by additional stimuli while watching TV, playing video games, or messing around on the computer. Ask yourself this. Is it a coincidence that our military drones can be operated with PlayStation and Xbox controllers? Or is it because the existing playful association with video games makes war into something fun instead of something terrible and destructive? Refer to the first episode segment on the laws of suggestibility for more insight on how this works. All parents know that they have to watch what they say and do in front of young children or they will repeat it. Their brains are built to mirror and model behaviors which they see others doing. It is one of the main ways children learn. Unfortunately, parents often seem to lose sight of the importance of this when they need a break and sit their kids in front of the TV. Sure, they may be watching age-appropriate programming, but just listen to that phrase, age-appropriate programming. Is there any question what the intention is here? In propaganda, the use of euphemisms and double meanings is extremely important. And the material in the shows themselves is not even the worst of it. What really gets inside their heads are the commercials. All you parents... Think about this. How old were your children when they started repeating commercials word for word or talking along with the television during the commercial breaks? Now ask yourself this. How old were they when they started asking for the things they saw on those commercials, saying, I want that? For my kids, I saw it at about two and a half years old, which is why we immediately canceled the cable and started reading to them and teaching them about science and the arts instead. I was blown away by the complexity and depth of thought that my children were able to comprehend at such a young age, and the questions they would ask were unbelievably on point. If you try this, you will see that children are much smarter than we give them credit for, and if we were to stop treating them like pets, they would grow up to be much more prepared for real life. The real clincher for getting rid of the television was when my daughter was saying, I want that, I want that, and pointing at the TV screen. We immediately turned the TV off and asked her to tell us what it was and what it did. She couldn't. 
She could not describe what it was, what it looked like, or even why she wanted it. She only knew she had to have it. Why? Because these corporations and marketing research firms spend billions of dollars a year on scientific research intended to find new and more effective ways of opening your child's subconscious mind to the idea of blind and thoughtless consumption for the purpose of immediate gratification. They also study the parents, and what amount of nagging or begging by a child will break them down to the point where they buy the toy just to stop the annoyance. And that is just the toy companies. What about the news? What about children's magazines, Nickelodeon, the Disney Channel? What about MTV in the music industry or modeling and fashion? What about the mindless meat puppets who are paraded across the TV and computer screens of the world spouting garbage that convinces your children that if they aren't skinny enough, rich enough, pretty enough, sexy enough, cool enough, mean enough, then they are nothing? Then let me ask you this. What is skinny enough, rich enough, pretty enough, sexy enough, cool enough, or mean enough? When is enough enough? Is it when your daughter needs to be fed a liquid diet through a tube to her stomach because she refuses to eat? Or is it when your son commits suicide because he was mercilessly bullied for being different? What about when your child comes home from school smelling like alcohol or when you find a syringe in the sock drawer because getting high is the only way to numb the pain? Why is it that the National Institute of Mental Health states that over 20% of American children, either currently or at some point in their life, have suffered from a seriously debilitating mental disorder? Is there a correlation or even a causal relationship between the fact that 20% of children suffer from seriously debilitating mental disorders and the following statistics from the A.C. Nielsen Company's BLS American Time Use Survey? Listen to this. The number of hours the average child spends watching TV per week, 25 hours. The percent of four to six-year-olds who, when asked to choose between watching TV and spending time with their fathers, preferred television, 54% of the time. Hours per year the average American youth spends in school, 900 hours. Hours per year the average American youth watches television, 1,200 hours. The number of violent acts seen on TV by age 18, 150,000. The number of 30-second TV commercials seen in one year by the average child, 16,000. And there are studies that show that children born after 2005 watch as much as 35 hours of television per week. That's the legal limit that a French citizen can spend at work in a week. Is there a relationship here? I think we would be fools to think not. But by no means is television the only source of propaganda in our children's lives. Unfortunately, we ourselves are responsible for reinforcing much of the harmful and oppressive programming we have picked up throughout our lives by handing it down to our children as if it were common sense. There are so many factors in this imperfect storm of war, stupidity, censorship, and oppression that we call human history that it is almost impossible for me to stay on one train of thought when analyzing its problems. The status quo has become so impervious to change that now when a group of people wants to change something, they end up following the script handed down to them by the system, which has taken the sacrifices and daring works of good people and repackaged them into an assembly line of fake rebellion and false civil disobedience that just makes the divide between us all into a chasm as it continues. Let's just look at a couple of the many isms in the world. Racism and anti-racism and feminism and anti-sexism. In both of these cases, the movement behind the desire to fix an injustice in the world was eventually capitalized on by the powers that be. 
The social dialogue was then manipulated through the use of propaganda, and the result in every case was more barriers and boundaries between people and their fellow humans, people and their society, or people and the natural world. Originally, the movement against racism was very successful. An amazing amount of social reform was achieved in a very short time, a century at most. This kind of change was recognized by the power puppeteers of the world as a potential threat to the status quo of keeping people at odds with those who are different from them. Brave people like Martin Luther King and Rosa Parks rose against the hate and segregation that was the status quo in their time and pushed American society in a positive direction, a direction in which many white Americans were happy to move. This brought about changes that touched every American life. Cities were rearranged as people of different skin colors started using the same bathrooms, restaurants, and schools. Our languages changed as we came up with new words to refer to minorities which would not bring offense or be a reminder of a painful past. And eventually the economic divide between the black and white populations of the United States began to close as well. Right around this time, pop culture was coming into its own. The radio first, then the television, was used as a way of homogenizing the American culture. Everyone, everywhere, started to have access to the same art, information, music, and products. The music industry began to explode in the amount of money that was being made by both artists and record labels. It was realized then that it was not necessary to overtly oppress the African-American people. It could be done in secret and could even be disguised as an attempt at furthering the cause of social equality. The government started to build huge housing projects to give black families affordable dwellings in the cities where they were now finding work. These were believed to be a godsend, and they were filled with families of minorities so fast that construction was not able to keep up. In places like Los Angeles, a new type of segregation was born, and parts of the city were left by the white populations as they moved toward the coast or places like Beverly Hills, and left places like Watts and Compton. These housing projects and parts of the cities where the lower-class white families once lived were now left to become the places of the new lower class, and those white families became the new middle class. These places became ghettos as they were flooded with crack and heroin, and local governments all but abandoned the responsibility of taking care of the schools, educating the children, and bolstering the new population so that everyone could be equal and have access to equal opportunity regardless of the color of their skin. It was realized that if done right, the people of the world could actually be manipulated into oppressing themselves, especially if it could be turned into a seemingly positive thing. So over time, television programming and popular music more and more depicted violence, gang life, drug dealing, and flagrant male aggression as positive and desirable behaviors. The N-word was changed from something ignorant, bigoted white people called black people to reinforce their subhuman status in society at the time, to something that African American people now call each other as a term of endearment. It happened over such a span of time and in such a way that it only needed to be suggested through the proper use of propaganda, and very little obvious violation of human rights was necessary. By simply limiting the funding spent on education, using the police forces in just the wrong way, and inserting just the wrong social memes into a society of an already disenfranchised people, the human rights movement in the United States was turned back into a self-regulating system of segregation and social injustice. Now let's take a look at the feminism movement. It evolved alongside the human rights movement and was bolstered by it in many ways. 
The original goal was to obtain equal rights for women by law in the workplace, in politics, in education, and opportunity. Women wanted to be on an even playing field with men in a world which has been dominated by men for a very long time. The sexual revolution was part of this movement as well. Women wanted the freedom to express themselves in whatever way they saw fit. Sex was becoming a much more open subject and women were finally able to openly express their appreciation of it in many ways which were considered offensive or even illegal in the recent past. Women wanted to be themselves with their own identity, free from the association with what men expected of them and the roles men placed on them. The woman's role in the family began to change as more and more mothers entered the workforce and women fought hard to earn the same amount of money as the men did who were doing the exact same job. There were incredible steps forward. Now, no one thinks twice when they see a woman as a CEO of a major corporation or a female police officer, judge, politician, doctor, or firefighter. It would have been a simple thing for the media outlets and the government of the United States to have decided to support women in their equality, and it would have done wonders for gender relations, the economy, and America's families if they had done so. Instead, you see women depicted on primetime television as airheaded, money-hungry bimbos with not enough clothes and very little of anything to offer anyone but their bodies, which are either modified by surgery or photoshopped into completely unnatural proportions. In the music industry, where women have long played a powerful role as talented and creative beings, they are now being depicted as borderline, barely legal porn stars, given their record deals because of their willingness to surgically modify their bodies and play a role which is scripted for them by publicists, record company executives, and huge multinational television networks like MTV, which are exposing our children to concepts and images which only a few decades ago would have been reserved for adults-only magazines and movies. The negative effect this has on the girls in our society is undeniable. On top of that, the feminist cause has now been twisted into something completely unrecognizable from its original form and instead of equality, now it is all about entitlement and special treatment. When was the last time you heard any major personality in the feminist movement bring up the fact that when a man calls the police on his wife for abusing him, that man is almost invariably the one locked up by the police, even when the woman was obviously the aggressor. Why is it that the feminist movement has not drawn any attention to the fact that young boys are five times more likely to commit suicide than young girls? It doesn't happen, because equality is no longer the goal, because activism in our culture has been hijacked by the propagandists who know just how to take a valid and necessary cause and turn it in on itself like a cancer. And speaking of cancer, let's take a minute to examine the breast cancer epidemic. About one in eight women will develop some kind of invasive breast cancer in their lifetime, and in 2016 it's expected that almost 250,000 new cases of breast cancer will be reported. Everyone bust out your pink ribbons so you can show your support for the search for a cure. Or better yet, bust out your wallets because this is about to get expensive. Because unfortunately the entire pink ribbon movement has been turned into another way for huge heartless corporations to prop it off good-hearted people. The caring people of the world. The notion that more money will find a cure faster has been demonstrated to be an absolute lie. In the last 30 years or so, hundreds of billions of dollars have been raised, and we are still left with the same three mainstream options for treatment, chemotherapy, radiation, and surgery. Anyway, only about 5% of that money will actually go into research. Not only that, but as a medical doctor or any other type of healthcare professional, you can be imprisoned or have your life ruined if you even try and speak about another potential cure for cancer. 
The fact still remains that most cancers are preventable. What causes cancer? Constant irritation. Whether it's stress or chemicals, it doesn't really matter. Well, when the pink ribbon marketing campaign comes around every October, just look at the majority of the products that boast a pink lid, a pink ribbon, or a promise on the box that a portion of the sales goes to cancer research. Then, look at the ingredients of those cosmetic products and processed foods inside those plastic containers. Almost all of them contain chemicals known to cause cancer. Even the packaging is made of cancer-causing chemicals. Then ask yourself, how does that portion of profit compare to the increase in profit that this corporation is going to make because of their ability to use my desire for a better, healthier world against me? My female listeners ought to be sickened to see what is being done to them in the name of progress. It is an utter abuse of power and influence, and you deserve more than that. You deserve true equality. You deserve to live in a world where men and women live, work, and love alongside each other. A world where pink ribbons don't exist because there is no breast cancer epidemic. A world where our daughters grow up knowing that they are beautiful and intelligent and capable of making the world a heaven on earth because that is what our world used to be. You deserve to be in your true power, in a world where you're treated like the half of life that completes the half that men contribute and where men complete the half that you contribute. You deserve a world where your ability to carry life is honored and worshipped for the miracle that it is, and where your intelligent and compassionate counsel is heard and valued, not belittled by a system designed to keep you down with the threat of violence or being overpowered. Both these causes are extremely important to the human race because they started with the intention of unifying all people. Now, they have been manipulated into something that just causes more fighting, more division, more boundaries, and isolationism. The human ego is such an easy thing to threaten and plays such a powerful role in most people's lives that if one specific emotional response can be triggered by a propagandist message, it will cause a rift between people almost every time. This emotional response is becoming such a problem in our culture that the entire political correctness movement is built on it. This is what happens when someone is watching a comedian and laughing at the jokes about everyone else's religion, but when it gets to their religion, they get up and storm out of the room. This is the emotion some of you may have felt when I said that feminism is now about entitlement and special treatment. It is the emotion that you feel when you watch a political debate and want to scream at the representatives of the other party, or a person in the same room as you, simply because their views are different from yours. It is the most hypocritical and most freedom-destroying emotion that we know, and it is being programmed into all of us so that we will never be able to work together to create real long-lasting change in the world. It's called righteous indignation, and it is the enemy of progress. Just think about this one last point. Every single great person in human history who brought about great change through their new way of thinking or seeing the world, offended the status quo and everyone around them with their ideas at first. Every one of them caused the people around them to feel that feeling of righteous indignation. Whether it was Leonardo da Vinci's Madonna of the Rocks, showing John the Baptist as the giver of blessings instead of Jesus, Galileo suggesting that the earth was not the center of the universe and proving that Jupiter had its own satellites, or Socrates corrupting the youth by teaching people to question the assumptions of their time, Righteous indignation was what caused every one of these great thinkers to resist releasing their most progressive ideas freely, thus slowing down the progress of humanity, possibly by hundreds or even thousands of years, 
If Copernicus had been free to think and publish his ideas on an open market of thought instead of waiting until he was dying to release his life's work, we might have been able to get to the moon by the 1800s. If Socrates and Aristotle, Galileo and Dante Alighieri, Leonardo da Vinci and Nikola Tesla, Rosalind Franklin and Marie Curie had been free of the need to hide their work, free from the shackles placed on their minds for fear of triggering righteous indignation in their peers, the church or governments of their times, then the world would be a very different place now. I'm going to leave you with this challenge. I challenge you, every one of you, to do an experiment over the next seven days. Find a pen and a small notebook, a notepad, or even a thin stack of paper stapled together. Carry them with you everywhere you go, and set your intention at the beginning of the experiment to follow the challenge as honestly and closely as you can. There may be times when you forget or even resist making additions to the list, but follow anyway for the possibility that it may illuminate something for you. You're going to test how conditioned you are to responding to the propaganda around you. Do your best to be as self-observant as possible and to get back on that path every time you stray off of it. The challenge is this. Every time you notice yourself thinking, I need that, about something which has no survival value whatsoever but instead might simply make your life easier or make you more beautiful, write down the thought and what it was about. Every time you notice yourself speaking about a celebrity from television, professional sports, or popular music as if you either know them personally or as if you are personally invested in the happenings of their life, write it down. For example, when you say to your girlfriends, did you hear about what Kim said to Kanye over Twitter today? Or when you and your guy friends comment on how if only you were the coach of the Dallas Cowboys, you would have called for a running play and they would have made that touchdown. Write down what you said or thought. When you notice yourself repeating some kind of political rhetoric which you heard another person say earlier at work, on NPR this morning or on the 10 o'clock news last night, write them all down. Anytime you notice that you just responded to a piece of propaganda in the way the propagandist intended you to, write it down. Anytime you feel righteous indignation because one person doesn't think, feel, or believe the same things as you, write it down. If you are truly honest with yourself, you will notice that you hardly go a few minutes at a time without at least unconsciously speaking, thinking, or acting in a way that was pre-programmed by media, government, or social propaganda. I'm going to leave it at that for now. We will revisit this topic again in the future when we all talk about how to block yourself from negative messages and how to protect your children from negative propaganda. I want to thank you all for joining us here and supporting the show. If you think you or someone you know would make a great guest for Messages from the Multiverse, please contact us at messagesfromthemultiverse at gmail.com. If you wish to contact me directly regarding my hypnotherapy or shamanic practice, educational presentations and workshops, or speaking engagements, you can email me at ian at hypnotropia.com. That's I-A-N at H-Y-P-N-O-T-R-O-P-I-A dot com. You can also learn more about me, this podcast, and Hypnotropia by visiting the website www.hypnotropia.com. Messages from the Multiverse is available for subscription on iTunes and Apple's iOS podcast app on your mobile devices and can also be found at soundcloud.com or on the SoundCloud app for your smartphone or tablet. Also at hypnotropia.com and is coming soon to the Google Play Store. Until next time, honor and love yourselves, your fellow humans, and our planet.
Be well.